the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. On November 13th of 1851, a small party of settlers landed at Alki Point in what we now call West Seattle. Mid-November, as any Northwest resident, including this one, will tell you, is hardly the time to be roughing it outdoors. Historians say that the only way the Denny Party managed to survive until the following spring was with the help and the assistance of the Duwamish people. There was ample reason for the Denny Party to give thanks. There has been very little reason for the Duwamish people to give thanks. 170 years after that meeting, they have been yet to be recognized as a tribe. And that is the topic of this week's edition of Challenge 2.0. Here to share their experiences, their perspectives, and their understanding of where we're at and where the Duwamish need to go are Cecile Hansen, the Duwamish Tribal Chairwoman, and also Ken Workman, who's long been a Duwamish Tribal Leader. Ken and Cecile, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having us. The, I might begin, Cecile, when you were 13, uh, you learned that you had a very famous and very respected ancestor. Can you tell us a little bit about that discovery and who it was? I was taking Washington State uh, history uh, when I was in junior high, and my mother said, you know, you're related to, to, to him when she meant to chief. So I told my teacher, and they drug me out to the uh, university, to the Burt Museum, put me in front of a TP. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> took my picture, and then I landed in the newspaper uh, at that time. But um, I'm glad that my mom, you know, spoke to me that way. You know, she wasn't, uh, she didn't elaborate on things. She just let me know that was the fact you related to the chief. To Chief Seattle. Yeah, Chief Seattle. No. She didn't say Seattle, though. She just, you, you related to the chief. The chief. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, putting you in front of a teepee was very inappropriate. Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, I might ask, when you learned that, Cecile, how did that change your sense of place and your sense of who you were, your sense of self? Well, I, I think I was about 14. I, I don't know. It just let me know that I was Native American and my ancestor is a Norwegian, French, German, uh, and Native American. So I have a lot of background you know we don't choose our parents but I was I'm proud to I'm proud of the native part. Ken I understand that you grew up in West Seattle and played in the uh, woods there aren't as many of those there I think in West Seattle anymore as there probably were when you grew up and also the very beach uh, where and correct me if I get this wrong your great 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 grandfather welcomed the very first settlers white settlers to uh, the area uh, First of all, am I right uh, in terms of that? And then when you visited Elkai Beach back then, uh, how did that impact you? What sense did you have? Um, right. And so first of all, it would be, there's a lot of greats in there and I lose count. So I, I use our own language to say, Akwayake, Wakwayake, and Hake, which simply means great, 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 great grandson of somebody. 
And in this case, it just happens to be uh, this person the world knows as Seattle, she's mm -hmm. Seattle. And so, yes, Jeff, I, I did grow up in the woods here uh, in West Seattle. And, and, and I'm sitting, coming to you today from just above the uh, Fauntleroy Ferry, uh, north of Lincoln Park. So I'm still back in the neighborhood. And uh, this ground is uh, sacred to me. And, and your question, you know, what does that mean? You know, how, does, how do I feel? Well, Alki has always drawn me. This beach, uh, the Western shore, of Elliott Bay, where I was born. It's on my birth certificate, the address there. Um, this place draws me and the smells draw me, the sounds draw me and it's, and it's a deep, deep memory. So I know all the memories from the time I can remember three or four, but there's something else that's, that's here too. Mm -hmm. So when I'm near Alki or I'm near the beach, um, I'm home. I, I'm like if you pour water on a flower in the middle of summer and I'll come alive. How does your sense of place, and I would uh, address this to both of you, uh, Cecile and Ken, differ uh, when you go back generation after generation after generation in a place versus those who have just moved to an area? What difference is there? Well, first of all, you know, we would say, uh, uh, this word is generic word. It means uh, come ashore. So it's uh, the words that we would use back uh, before Chinook language and the ancient language of the Duwamish people. So we would say, uh, come ashore, my friends, onto this land, of the Duwamish people, and when I said that last word, that that simply means invite. And so this is the thing that we've been doing for thousands and thousands of years. We, we recognize that there are new people here these um these people that my grandfather welcomed in 1851 uh these are the new generation of people but we as duwamish have been here for a long long time mm -hmm. and so when you ask us what it's like you know intergenerationally to be part of this land it's in our dna we are born to this land and when i was talking about the sights and the smells and the sounds i'm talking about imprinting mm -hmm. So I'm imprinted on this land just exactly as if a duck was or a deer was or a salmon or, or anything else. I'm, I'm always drawn home. And so for the new people here, we say, welcome to the neighborhood. <laughs> in fact, you're breathing the same air of my ancestors. And so we, we delight in sharing. Uh, you wrote an article, I believe it was called the uh, Seattle Department of Neighborhoods that was published on Indigenous Peoples Day, I think this year. And wasn't it in the form of a letter uh, to your ancestor, Chief Seattle? What points did you make in that? Uh, yes, that was this year, as a matter of fact. Uh, November 1st, I think, is when it was published. And the ask was, if you were talking to your great-great-great-great-grandfather, and there's, there's a lot of greats in there, then how would that conversation go? And so for me, it's just sitting on a log on the beach and looking across the bay from the western side of Elliott Bay towards Seattle and saying, Grandpa, did you have any idea this would happen? And so as we look at these big, tall buildings in downtown Seattle, the only way that I could talk to a person that had no reference for these skyscrapers is these are longhouses, they're just standing on end. And so we have these things that uh, fly up in the air, these uh, uh, 
um, thunder canoes, um, airplanes, airplanes, thunder canoes. And so it would be in describing all of the changes and how quickly they came. Cecile, I might ask you, uh, there was a new exhibit that opened up at the uh, Duwamish Longhouse in West Seattle. I only had a few moments to uh, look at it before and, and looking forward to going back, but that is documenting the long history of your people in association with this area. Can you tell us a little bit about that length of association and what you're portraying in that exhibit? Well, it's about time that we are allowed to, uh, the spirit returns, which is about the, our people and uh, we're still here. I always say we're still here. And then to display it in our beautiful longhouse. And that, that would give us more interest in the history of Seattle and our people. And so I'm delighted that finally we have this exhibit that took a little while to put together, but it's really great. And, uh, and I know that what I've heard from our visitors that they are enjoying the history of Seattle. If you were to, let's say you were in there uh, as you were the day that I visited and somebody came through and you wanted to draw their attention to a couple of points of particular interest, what would those be and why? The Chief Seattle's hat. I think that's to, for us. Well, the, the sad part is that it should have been just returned to our tribe, but we had to buy it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I was a little disappointed to hear that, but we do have his hat and a few items uh, of cooking, uh, uh, like the uh, uh, plates or the dishes that people used to cook in. So that's, that's quite interesting to people that we didn't have pots and pans, but we had those uh, wonderful instruments. Yes, I like that. Going back to when those initial settlers first arrived uh, at Alki Point, uh, it was in November, which is any of us that have lived here for any amount of time, uh, even if we're not from here, know it's not a particularly hospitable time to uh, uh, try to make your way uh, roughing it in uh, uh, this particular area. Would those settlers have likely survived without the welcome that you elaborated on, Ken? Well, um, I, I'm not sure that they would. I'm, I'm sure they were heart, they're hearty people. Mm -hmm. these settlers um but i'm not sure all of them would have survived and as you pointed out this is the time of year where it, it's called shitsawas um the paddles go up this is the stormy season and the days start getting colder and the leaves fall off of the trees and so for these people to arrive here the denny party without shelter mm -hmm. without a roof over their heads or protection from the wind and the rain then I'm not sure they would have, that the Duwamish people recognize that these are strangers and we open our doors to them and we say, welcome here and we help them. So I'm not sure, Jeff, if, if all of them would have survived. I'm sure the world would be a different place and that some of them would have survived. Following that landing, that initial uh, interaction, uh, there was an agreement that was signed. Can you tell us about what that was and what happened afterward? Uh, I, I just was seeing something. Uh, was it a trick or was it was a treaty? <laughs> hmm. uh, because all Native Americans in the Puget Sound agreed to this agreement, this uh, treaty. However, they did not do well with our tribe by following the promises told in this uh this uh, treaty, and it's very disappointing for me 
after all these years trying to get that status back to our people because giving up so much, but I'm so happy we own two thirds of an acre. We gave up 54,000 acres. We do own two thirds of an acre. I'm happy about that. And uh, <laughs> I know it's, we have, you, you can't be cranky about that because we're happy we got our longhouse on our land and uh, things are going well, but um, the tenacity of our people who help succeed on what our goals are. And, and I hope that we will succeed on returning the status to our tribe. Mm -hmm. Ken, what are some of your perspectives and points that you'd like to make about that? Um, the treaty that you're talking about, the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855, it was signed on January 22nd. Uh, and just as Chairperson Cecile pointed out, there were many people that signed this treaty. And so if you take the date of January 22nd, 1855 and subtract it, the number of days from the Denny Party landing on Point Elliott, this thing that we were talking about earlier, then you end up with uh, three years, two months and nine days. And so that's all the time it took for us as a people to go from this hunter-gatherer where we were for thousands of years where we lived off the land to this new era where this treaty said, um, this is not your land anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you have to leave. You have to go to these things called reservations. And so for us, it, everything exploded. Everything turned upside down. Mm -hmm. That three years, two months, and nine days is just a blink of an eye. And that's all it took to erase thousands of years worth of culture, worth of living in harmony with, with the land, with knowing our neighbors, who were the tribes up north and the tribes down south. And so what it means to us today is that we continue to struggle as, as a tribe. And it's because of what the chairperson was just talking about, our federal recognition. We're not federally recognized. And so in many things, um, we suffer. Uh, this pandemic, this COVID thing that just now happened, we weren't allowed federal aid like other federally recognized tribes. We had to fend for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so this thing continues on. So these are part of the ways that uh, this treaty, the signing of a treaty and the relinquishing of this land, um, this ancestral land. And when I say that, I'm Jeff, what I'm talking about are the bones that are buried underneath this, these houses, the foundations of houses, underneath the streets, underneath the parks and the sidewalks. Mm -hmm. Because Seattle's only 170 years old. And so this place is brand new. And so if I sound passionate, that's because I am. I'm trying to take care of, take care of the bones that are in the ground. Well, I heard the chief said, even though we might be gone, their spirits are here. He says, they're here. I can, and you can, I really truly believe it. Our spirits of our people are here. Mm -hmm. I don't care where it is in the city of Seattle. I might ask both of you, uh, the impetus, the motivation for wanting to right these wrongs, the lack of rec recognition, et cetera, are, uh, are very obvious. But what for each of you individually motivated you to begin to make this an active part of your life, an active mission? Well, I was just minding my own business as a, as a mom taking care of her children and raising 
in raising my family uh, at my own home and to be challenged by my brother to uh, get involved in uh, 74, 1974, 75, because we were fighting for fishing rights in the Duwamish River. Mm-hmm. And, and like, my, like I, he said, I said, well, what do I have to do? And he said, just go to a few meetings. And then I start going with him in 75. And next thing we know, we're, uh, we're in, the, in the midst of a, a, a battle of securing fishing rights for our people. Uh, unfortunately, when we got into the boat decision, for whatever reason, we were ruled against and we lost our fishing rights. And then there, then at that time, um, and I had been elected chair, uh, I think in 75, that it was the decision that we would, we would uh, try to um, secure our status. And we thought if we um, programmed our status and told the federal government who we were, I think that we, we thought that we would get our fishing rights. Mm-hmm. But the battle still goes on. What was, and Ken, I want to ask you what really uh, was the impetus for you to get involved in this. But I might ask first, uh, what was the problem? What were the obstacles that blocked you from getting that recognition of what had been a fact dating back thousands of years? Well, what got us started is the, of today, the opposition of the surrounding tribes, and I'm not going to name it because it makes me sad to hear that as Indian people, we should, it is my feeling as Indian people, even though we might have differences of opinion, we should support each other. And uh, and I think that sometimes I what these people are speaking out against the Duwamish tribe, that they are... Um, they're fearful of what we do if we become acknowledged. And you know what? That's not going to happen because we are still a peaceful tribe. And we we're, I think it's my position that we're just going to help to, to help our people, but help the people in the community. I would also add that as a people, um, when we signed this treaty as Duwamish people, we were told that we would have to move. Mm-hmm. And some of these places that we were told to move to did not have the resources to sustain life. We're coming from the Duwamish River, which before it was modified and before Lake Washington had the locks on it, was three times the size that it is now. So it was a tremendous food source for the area and for us specifically. So then we were told we have to move. <clears throat> and so it becomes a matter of survival whether we stay on these reservations, some of which were welcoming, some not, that it was survival. And so some of us scattered, and now the government says, well, you don't have any land. And we said, well, you took it. (laughs) And then they said, well, you signed a treaty. And we said, we thought we were starting a negotiation, not ending one. And then the language that was used was Chinook jargon, which is a very simple language. It's an international, it was a, it's a coastal trading language, very much like um, English is an international airline pilot's language. If you fly an international flight and you're a pilot, you're required to know English. And so here's this language, this, this Chinook jargon used to make this treaty and this person speaking very kindly and saying, we're going to take care of you, but it didn't happen. And so now we go years later, 150 or so years later, and people say, well, you don't have any land and you don't have any organization and you don't have and you don't have. Well, Jeff, for us, it's survival. 
It's life and death. And that's literal. That's not, that's not pretend. It's the place. And so it draws me just as if I was a salmon returning home, returning, you know, to, to spawn upstream. That's what this place does. But for me, it's the ground. It's the bones that are in the ground. And it's my duty as a Duwamish person to take care of those ancestral bones. And we know through scientific studies, um, this is Dr. Uh, Susan Samard out of British Columbia, who has studied tree roots and fungi in the ground. And she recognizes through her studies that whatever is in the ground migrates up into the trees and into the berries through their root system and the symbiotic relationship between fungi in the ground and the roots of trees. So we recognize that our people are in the trees. And when you talk to us about our customs and our ceremonies, one of which is to wake a canoe up. Every year in the springtime, it's time for the canoes to go back on the water. So we perform these rituals. And these rituals involve routines. And they involve cedar branches. And they involve um, words. And so when you take the studies of Dr. Susan Samard, who, said, who has studied that stuff that's in the ground, including our Duwamish ancestors, mm -hmm. they migrate back up into the trees and that our ancestors are in fact in the trees at a molecular level, that when we take these branches and we perform these duties, we are in fact recognizing our ancestors are alive. Mm -hmm. They're alive today and every bit as alive as they were back then. They have just changed. They've changed from being people into trees. And so this is what draws me and this is what I'm driven to protect. And so I, I thank Cecile for her work, her chairwoman Cecile for her work for 44 years in maintaining this Duwamish tribe so that we, our culture can be maintained and that we, can continue to serve as custodians for these hills of Seattle. And that we can say to our friends around the world, which simply means everybody, all my friends, welcome everybody from around the world onto this land of the ancient Duwamish. What is your next step? and you've gained some new allies, what are they doing uh, to attempt to forward your cause as well? Well, it's so wonderful that we have that support out there for on behalf of our mission, which is to have our status returned. Point being is that it's, it's right that our status returned to the Duwamish people. And I am so, especially the real renters, when they say, well, we're a real renter, I just tell them I love them because they are supporting the Duwamish tribe. Mm -hmm. And there is many, many uh, organizations that are that are speaking out on behalf of us. In fact, we just heard that the Seahawks has made us the charity charity person. In other words, they were speaking out on they're speaking out and supporting our tribe, not with money, but just speaking out supporting the Duwamish mm -hmm. tribe. That is wonderful. You mentioned real rent. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about that? Well, that was created by a volunteer group about three or four years ago, deciding in their meeting, private meeting, that we ought to pay rent. And that's how it started. 
real <laughs> renters. It is, it is marvelous. It has really helped our tribe today. For people that are watching or listening to this program uh, that would like to help in some shape or form, what would both of you say to them? What would both of you ask them to do? I, I would advise them to uh, put pressure on our elected officials to be a little more supportive of the indigenous people, which is Duwamish. And, and I would ask them um, to do that, but also um, from an environmental perspective, just to take better care of the place. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. That um, if they would simply recognize that as, a, as people, we're part of the planet. And that Dr. Susan Samard studied this through that thing I was talking about, the migration material from the ground up into the air, that if people realize how closely interconnected they were with all living things, mm -hmm. that they would take better care of the place. And in doing so, they might also, for the Duwamish people, recognize that we're still in the ground and we're still here in many forms. Today, we come to you in the form of the chairwoman, Cecile Hansen, and myself. And then um, for everybody else, it's Duwamish tribal members that are in the ground, that are in the trees, that are in the air, and that are all around you. Well, I thank both of you for uh, setting aside some time to educate us on this and inform us on this. And I see future episodes I'd love to do with both of you. I hope you'll uh, keep us up to date on that so that we can do that and possibly look at that relationship with the land that you uh, stated so eloquently. So uh, Ken and Cecile, thank you both so much for joining us. And to all of you out there, I hope you'll again join us next week on the next edition of Challenge 2.0. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.